I guess I wasn't originally gonna gonna ask this question, but I feel like we're here. So, so how do you feel about God? Um, that's that's actually a complicated issue. Um, my wife, my wife, uh, my wife's religious. I knew that marrying her. Uh, she knows that I am not a church-going man, and that I have my issues with God. Um, I don't care how other people believe. They have the right to believe if, what they want. Uh, that is one of the founding principles of America, that you have the right to believe in whatever you want, which is one of the reasons the internet atheist is a person who makes me just fucking wish I could drown them in a puddle because they don't want to allow people to have the freedom to worship how they want. They want to stand there and mock them and make fun of them and ostracize them and make them feel like shit and call them evil. Um, they're just as bad. Internet atheists in a lot of ways are just as bad as the people who drove the people who were religious to America in the first place. They're judgy. They're hypocrites. I mean, half of the big half, half of the big internet atheists from the early two thousand early to mid two thousands have been busted on fucking beating women in child porn, and yet you're gonna preach to fucking religious people that they're evil. Go fuck yourself. But when it comes to my personal beliefs, um, if he does exist, how about he leave me alone for a little while? How about he let me relax? Because sometimes. Sometimes I feel like if there is a God, I would like to have a discussion with him. <laughs> um, I'm one of those people that runs toward the disaster. Um, I have been since I was a kid, uh, partially because I have no sense of self-preservation. <laughs> I really don't. <laughs> yeah, it was a calculated risk. But boy, am I bad at math. <laughs> um an example is not too long ago where I live, um, a guy suffered a epilepsy-induced stroke at a stoplight on the off-ramp of the freeway. And uh, my daughter and I took care of him until the police got there, and the ambulance got there. And um, it was fairly, you know, he was bleeding everywhere because, you know. He was bleeding out the nose and out of one ear, and you know, I keep him calm because he didn't know where he was, and he was borderline violent. I had clocked in the fucking jaw and all that good stuff because, and I don't blame him for this because you know he doesn't know where he is. He's had an epilepsy do stroke. <laughs> um, but I get back, and my wife is like, "Jesus fucking Christ, this is why I, this is why I take anxiety medication because we you know we told her about it. She's like." You're the reason I take anxiety medication. <laughs> you, you right there, old man. You're the reason. And, you know, this kind of stuff happens to me all the goddamn time. Um, three or four times a year this shit happens to me. Um, so at times it feels like, hey, you know, how about, God, you uh, give some of these people a fucking break and let me go to the store, right? Not give me a break. Why don't you give them a break? You know, because I know first aid. I've taken so many first aid courses because, you know, I don't know how many times I have ran, you know, had to use them by the side of the fucking road. It's just. So when it comes to God, I kind of, you know, he can do his thing. I'll do mine. And while I believe, you know, I. I try to follow the Ten Commandments because, you know, basically the Ten Commandments boil down to don't be an asshole. <laughs> yeah. 
you know, I'm a, yeah, I'm a shitty person, but I'm not, you know, but yeah, I, when it comes to religion, I know a lot of religious people. Um, some of them, some of them are, uh, underneath the veneer of religion. They're terrible people, mm-hmm. but religion didn't make them terrible. They were terrible people who would be actually, here's a good example. I know somebody that was really religious in their younger days. And they use that religion to cover up the fact they were awful fucking people. And now they're all aboard the social justice train. They're all aboard the progressive trade. They're huge Democrats. They're always screaming about this, that, and the other thing. But, you know, and I actually told him this before I got fucking banned off of Twitter. Um, I actually told him this. He was like, you need to believe all women. Right, he was doing this big screen, and it was filling up my fucking timeline because a f- mutual friend of ours was retweeting it, and they, I kept getting it. So I tweeted at him one thing: I don't know, you didn't want anybody to believe you when you used to choke your daughter with your dick. I got wow. banned. <laughs> thing is, he did. Wow. But yet yeah, he's up there telling you how to live. So it wasn't religion that did it to him. He was a terrible fucking person. <laughs> yeah. So I kind of use my real beliefs. I kind of keep off to the side and, you know, kind of keep quiet. I don't go to church because I can't help but wonder who here is, you know, that person. And I don't trust people. I learned, I learned when I was younger, not to trust. And so, yeah, when it comes to religion, I'm fine with how people want to believe as long as it doesn't hurt people or other people. So we won't get, you know, go down a list of the world's religions because <laughs> some, some of my opinions are not appropriate. So, uh, but, you know, it's because I've actually met these people and seen these people. Oh, yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm both used to the church lady who screams, you know, about everybody's sin – but yet, let's fifteen-year-old boys fuck her up the ass, you know. I mean, it's like nobody is safe from the underbelly. No, no, and the projection. These people are always projection. You know, they're always screaming about what they're really doing. So yeah, me and me and religion are a little bit. Are a little my my wife's religious, and she tries to live that life. She does her best, so I'm fine with you know her. Uh, one of my kids is religious. I'm fine with that. But at the same time, I'm not. And it's it's not I'm not religious because I don't believe in God. I'm not religious because I don't want to be associated with these assholes. That's fair. I mean, then it's it's just so freak. I mean, it, it's it's like with most things. It's like it's just um, making each other look bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I hate call out culture. I've hated oh. call out culture since it was the little old lady in church are the fucking liberals down the street. So, so I don't really like, but anyway, let's go to the next. Next question. All right. So, um, I guess, so back to the book. So, so how many revisions has the timeline gone through for the series? (laughs) Just the timeline, just Just the the timeline. Just the timeline has only gone through one revision, and that was pushing Stillwater back a year. Mm-hmm. Well, pushing the events back a year, but leaving his age the same. Okay. That's the major revision. 
That is the absolute major revision. Um, minor revisions, quite a few, but mostly it's for who was where, who was killed, uh, adding one character, removing another, switching some people around. Um, usually that happens on a per book basis. One nice thing about having written so far into the future of the series is that when I'm rewriting these early books, I can correct mistakes. And they're usually minor stuff. So, you know. There you go. So it seemed like it was, you know, it was pretty it was set up pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah, and he's present for a lot. And a lot of people are like, oh, how can he be present for all that? Well, let's see. I was in the military when Nicaragua went down, when Panama went down. I knew people who were in the Beirut bombing. I was in Western Germany when the wall went down. I was in Western Germany when the Soviet Union collapsed. I was in Desert Storm. <laughs> yeah, I was I was present for a lot of this stuff. So mm-hmm. it's to me, it's not that out of the realm of possibility for all the things he's taken part in because, hey, I was there. <laughs> and I'm telling you, you cannot – you cannot, unless you were living in Germany when the wall went down, you cannot understand how surreal it was. <laughs> I mean, it just ev- just everything else you've described is just as surreal as it gets. And so, like, I mean, at one point, like, we've got greased up midgets and then. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when the wall went down, it was, um, number one, the U.S. Army didn't know if it was a trick. Here's the thing. The Thursday, well, I think it was a Thursday. I can't remember anymore. God, I was, killed so many brain cells drinking. Uh, oh. Right before, the day or two before the wall went down, mm-hmm. I attended a briefing. Uh, I attended a briefing because it was my turn in the barrel when it came to briefings. <laughs> Everybody hated going to these briefings, so they draw out of a hat anybody above the right, uh, E4 or above. <laughs> And, you know, for enlisted and an, and an officer would have to go to these briefings. And I sat there and listened to this fucker in a suit talk about how everything was fine. That the Soviet Union, even though there's some unrest in Romania, everything is fine. The Soviet Union is solid. Don't, you know, don't be thinking, don't start spreading that there's unrest in Romania and the Soviet Union is going to collapse, right? It was like 48 hours later and somehow or another I, I'm in East Berlin <laughs> In East Berlin, yelling at the top of my lungs with my arm around a chi- around a chick with that's wearing a pair of uh, khaki pants, combat boots, and orange suspenders, and marching on the wall. I got shot in the face with a rubber bullet, <laughs> but it was fun. <laughs> Memories of the Berlin Wall. It was fun. <laughs> it, was, it was it was a blast, and I still remember. I I got video. Well, I got. Ended up on the news, and my CO was like, "I mean, I told, hey man, the CO's looking for you." And I'm like, "Okay." So I go down to his office, and he's got he's got a TV and a VCR set up. And the first thought goes through my head is, "He didn't find that porno tape, did he?" <laughs> and he turns it on, and he turns on the TV, and it's paused at a picture of me that was taken, and I guess it was on AFN News. And I was like, "Oh fuck!" And he goes, "That you?" I'm like, no, sir. He goes, it looks like you. And I'm like, it's a six-foot-tall blonde man in Germany, sir. There are many of us. What looks like me? It looks like you to me. And I'm like, not me, sir. Not me. Not me. I have never been so glad that there was no such thing as HD back then. (laughs) 
with a fucking with a fucking uh with a fucking VHS a v a copy a copied onto VHS on a stretched out tape on a shitty TV. I have never been so glad in my life you could not make out features. <laughs> Because he was like, is that you? And I'm like, no, it, I'm walking away. I'm walking away with my patoot star. And he looks at me and goes, that's totally fucking you. <laughs> I'm like, no, no, it isn't. <laughs> I got back to my room. My roommate's like, so what you been doing the last four days? I'm like, I have no idea. <laughs> it's making I, history. <laughs> I, I, I'm getting footage missing. <laughs> you know, I remember being on the Bonhoeff, the train, and heading for Berlin and macking on this fucking girl. And then the next thing I know, the next part of my memories is walking down the street with my hand on the back of her pants, drinking alcohol out of a gas can. <laughs> so there's footage missing in here. <laughs> At least I think it was alcohol because I didn't, you know, oh, die. <laughs> We hope it was. <laughs> I have no idea. I remember drinking out of a biker chick's boot and straining it with her underwear. I don't know why. I don't know why I'm doing it. I don't know where all the bikers came from. I don't know why they're cheering on me. I have no idea where my shirt went. <laughs> yeah, I I ended up in a lot of situations that probably weren't the best because I was always, what are they going to do? Kill me? <laughs> Did you ever just switch bodies with Hunter Thompson? <laughs> oh God. I read I read Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and a lot of people are like, How could it end up like that? How could it end up like that? I was reading it the whole time I'm reading it, I'm like, This is some shit that would totally happen to me. <laughs> Cause yeah, I've that's like, you know, when we moved, when my family and I moved because I lost my shit, um, I was at work, and the Widowmaker blew out, oh. and I got some shrapnel damage, and I and they said, okay, everybody get out of here before the fucking inspectors show up, and before the insurance companies show up, you know, so they're running us all off, and uh, yeah, it's, it's a great job, <laughs> and uh, I got in the car, and I go home, and I go upstairs, well, I go in the house, and I tell my wife, get the kids get in the car my wife sees that look you know she by that time she'd been married to me for like 10 years so she knows this look so she grabs the paper the document holder out of the out of the drawer that has everybody's you know statistical stuff and she comes back and she helps let everybody in the car seat and we're driving off and i remember my daughter going mommy where are we going and my wife goes daddy's gone crazy so i don't know where we're going <laughs> And we drove until I saw until I saw a fucking house that was for rent, and that's where we ended up. And we left everything behind because I went fucking crazy. <laughs> you know, my kids have my kids have great stories. <laughs> I you know, I remember when Daddy went outside and got in a fist fight with it here. <laughs> oh my God. Hey, shut up! This is an interview. <laughs> You be quiet over there. You're almost thirty. You can be quiet. It's just the radio. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, you know they, the kids have got great stories. My daddy beat up a deer. <laughs> yeah, thanks for going. Thanks for going to school and telling them. Oh god, it's insane. Like yeah. my dad's on the Berlin Wall. <laughs> yeah, I used to have a piece of the Berlin Wall. Uh, oh wow! My mother threw it away. <laughs> <laughs> 
she threw it away because that's a whole bag of snakes. Let's not even get it. She threw it away because she knew it would hurt me. Oh. But uh, yeah, she threw. I, you know, I had a piece of the Berlin Wall. Um, I had Iraqi dinars that I picked up off the ground. I think they were dinars. No, they're not dinars. I had Iraqi money that I picked up off the ground. I had a. Uh, I had the CIA pamphlets that they dropped. To uh, you know, propaganda pamphlets. I had a bunch of those. They were all they were all pushed into the into the pocket of my pants, and the Air Force didn't steal them. So when I when I got on my shit back when I got out of the hospital, it was all still in my pocket. Uh, do you know if any of those things like have a do they have like a resale value? <laughs> I have no idea. Um, I kind of crumpled them up and put them in my pocket, but uh, I wish I still had them. I wish my mom hadn't thrown them away because you know I'd love for my grandkids to be able to take them into you know take them into show and tell in ten years. Oh, yeah. Because you know, I because they were just blowing across the desert. I, I remember like an interview with Jordan Peterson, and he was saying like he he bought like he had bought a bunch of old like Russian propaganda posters from the yeah. Soviet Union, and he just has them hanging up all over his house. And I was just like, oh man, I wonder what a chunk of the Berlin Wall would have been. Like, I like, don't know. I had a I used to have posters. The, the Ivan is listening posters. I used to have a bunch of those. I used to have a bunch of uh, U.S. propaganda side, and then I had some Soviet propaganda I got from the guys across the across the one K zone. So yeah, I mean, if my mom hadn't decided, you know, that she wanted to teach me a lesson, I'd love to find out how much that was worth. Wow. But still, because you know things were crazy, things were weird, you know. Was, no, hit, <laughs> hit me up with another question. It was the good old days. <laughs> um. Okay, well, I think we we kind of answered. I I think I think because uh, because we had someone ask um, like how the characters are have just so much depth and and uh, um probably because um and just how they deal with trauma and emotions in different ways and yeah, there's probably probably because I have known a lot of fucked up people. Yeah. Um, I've known a lot of people that have been through some shit. Um, I mean, I've known people who've lost limbs, uh, shockingly lost them. Mm. You know, we're talking, uh, one of my, one of my friends from high school, he died a few years back. Uh, he lost his arm. Uh, he was outside during a thunderstorm and he was bringing stuff in and lightning hit the fucking transformer and he got hit in the middle of the bicep with the power line and it blew his, it literally blew his arm off. And, you know, I, I remember him getting you, you know, him dealing with that and everything. So, you know, it's probably because I've known, I've known a lot of broken people. I've known a lot of people who, you know, life was just cruel to them. Sort of just reach back in there and just put it down. Yeah. Yeah. And I combine, you know, different people, different things together. Um, I literally, uh, Nancy Nagel has a line in there that, uh, that a friend of mine once said, and it's a terrible line. It's a horrible, horrible line that, uh, she said that I included in the book and, you know, she was talking about her past and, you know, her older sister and Nancy Nagel's older sister was hit by a train and real, you know. The person I took the line from, their older sister ran away. She said, I learned a lesson. I said, well, you know, we're all drunk. And I said, what was that lesson? And she goes, 
that I wasn't even good enough to molest. And I included the book uh, with a different background and a lot and a bigger different character because it's the second most striking thing. Well, it's one of the most striking things. I've had women tell me all kinds of stuff that have just floored me. Um, the One of the ones I heard, uh, I thought about putting it in the book, but I literally couldn't because this was just too screaming. You know, it makes you want to scream that uh, I didn't include it in the book. Um, I probably won't include it in the book. I thought about it. I might include it in the option of a third person because it fits. But um, there's this scene. Well, not this scene. In real life, um, really hot girl. You know, I'd known her for years, and I'd been itching to get it, itching to get with her. And you know, not anything major. Just you know, me and her have fun. And uh, remember something she said. And, I can never, ever forget it. Now, people want to know why my characters are so dark. This is something I was told as a teenager. So, you know, we're getting ready to do the thing. And uh, she reaches down and she goes, hey, we can do whatever you want. And I'm like, hey, cool. And she laughed and goes, she laughed, but you have to kind of have ever heard that kind of laughter to understand it. She goes, well, it's not as big as my dad, so I know it'll fit up my butt. And if people want to know why some of my characters are so dark... She was looking me dead in the fucking eyes when she said that. I have never forgotten that line. It's not as big as my dad, so we can put it up my butt. Wow. So if you want to know why the characters have a tendency to be dark, because when you scratch the thin veneer of civilization, humanity is fucking dark. You're just kind of—that's what you're. I essentially, this is what I see. The, the two nineteenth is it's it's just scratching yeah. off that that sort of that superficial yeah. layer. Yeah, because they don't have time for the superficial layer. They don't have the energy to keep it up, and you end up with all the nastiness and all the horribleness. You know, that's like I had somebody say that Jonathan Bomber seemed like a real seemed like he didn't fit with the group, and I was like, "Are you fucking kidding? John's broken." And they don't really see it. And I try to expand on it later. Um, I think it's mentioned in either the second or the third book that he met this girl at a rodeo. And they fell madly in love with each other. And they carried, you know, they met when they were at the junior rodeo. And it wasn't until he was like 16 that he introduces her to his parents and their parent and her parents. And it turns out that. In reality, that's his cousin, that his uncle had been written out of the family will because during Vietnam, he ran off to – he ran – no, during Korea, he ran – or Korea or Vietnam, I can't remember which I have to look it up, ran to Canada to avoid the draft. And so he was written out of the family will. He was written out of the family legacy. And it, life was so cruel that it did that to him, and it broke him because – all of his money doesn't matter. All of his family's money doesn't matter. What he really wanted, the only thing he wanted in life, which was to settle down, marry with this girl and settle down, is denied. He has no hope. And it taints every single love affair he has. It completely taints it. Because in the back of his head, he's waiting for the other shoe to drop. So he has a problem forming attachments to women. 
it completely destroyed his ability to form an attachment to a woman. And it's funny because you know everybody's like, oh, well, he's rich. Well, all of his money doesn't matter. He can't have – and not only that, it's not just what he wants. It's what she wanted. But all of his money, all of his family's political power didn't matter because the two of them couldn't have what they want, which makes it dark. And he says it's an ultimate joke because it's a cliché. So you know, people that think that he doesn't belong in it, as far as he's concerned, all of his family's wealth is useless. He doesn't care about it. All of his family's land, all of his political power is useless. He doesn't care anymore. And so he's standing there next to Ant hoping he gets shot in the face because that's easier than dealing with the fact that the only person he's ever really loved is life itself fucked him. No, that's not really a spoiler, but there's – and it gets gets even darker, but the whole thing is dark because in order to survive – in order to make it through the training they went through, it was completely dehumanizing. The only way you could make it is to have something wrong with you, something that makes it so that when you're knocked down, you get back up no matter how bad it is, and that's an ugly thing. It's very ugly and dark, and it's like, well, and I, and I, I think it's an outlier, in a sense, because, like, I've, 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 you know, read many a story before where it's like, you know, <laughs> where it seems like, you know, the 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 author is just is just reveling in the nihilism of of yeah. this of this story, and and the punchline is that you know it means nothing. This literally, the point of this story was nothing. <laughs> Uh, which is which is a bit different. Well, actually, it's a lot different. It's a lot different than the two nineteenth because I I feel like you could compare that in a sense. But when 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 these kind of when these writers you know they write a story and it's like well here's a character and here's what happens to them they go through absolute hell and um, and uh, you know the end or I think like perfect example American Psycho American Psycho. It's, uh, I've never watched that movie, believe it or not. You know, I've never read the book. <laughs> I couldn't. I couldn't get through the book. I couldn't finish it, and I, I thought the movie would be better, perhaps, because I thought maybe it would kind of be condensed and it'd be funnier, and it, it would just kind of convey it without being a drag. And I just thought it was a huge drag because it was just. It's. It's literally. There's one good joke. There's a business card scene. It's hilarious. I love it. <laughs> just for that one scene. Isn't great. that where they're laying their dicks on the table by using their business cards? Yes, <laughs> it's great. Yeah, it's like, I've, seen, I've seen excerpts of that. Yeah, it's like my business. Like, look at my, see, like my business card made from ivory paper. With, with and it's like, and just how this business card is amazing, and they all look basically the same. I've actually got a scene like that. Only it's so different. They're sitting at the back table of the NCO club, and they're all drinking, and it's like midnight. And so on a weekday, and everybody's pretty much left with them. They're sitting in the back table, and one of the guys digs in his pocket and slaps a coin, a challenge coin. Now, these are brass coins, a little bit bigger than a silver dollar. And they have the unit that gave it to you and the year and basically what operation you were on. Some of them don't. Some of them were just like from the commander of so-and-so, and you slap it down. You don't have to say anything Unless you want to of where you got it. Well, you have to say where you got it and like who gave it to you. But you don't have to go into details. And they're back there slapping them down. And there's this – there's a guy from finance. And he's sitting there and they pull them all out. And he's got, he goes, man, I have one coin. So and, I, and as the night goes on, the coins get more and more impressive. And he's like, I'm not going to throw it in. I'm not going to throw it in. I'll keep buying the drinks, right? 
So it gets to like the last one of the night, and he goes, all right, I'm going to throw mine down. Everybody's like, man, this thing better be good. He takes it out of his pocket, and he sets it down, and it's still got the bullet in it. Oh, shit. And and everybody's like, how the fuck? He goes, yeah, I got given this, and I went off post, and some guy tried to rob the 7-Eleven and shot me in the chest. (laughs) (laughs) So everybody had to buy him a drink because it was one of the best ones that was laid on the table. But to somebody who's not in it, it's just brass coins. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I see the comparison, but I think, like, when Ellis wrote, you know, when Ellis wrote that book, it was basically... I mean, it was, it was, it's kind of a product of its time in a sense, but it's like, you know, it's, it's a satire of, you know, the sort of the wall street guys and the, and the, and the rich and the, the upper class and, you know, kind of nihilism of the rich. Yeah. And just how superficial it all is, but it's, it's, it's literally, it's one joke and it it goes on for 400 pages and, and Uh, yeah. And it's a bloodbath and it's all for nothing. And I'm just kind of like, you know, there's, and the characters don't change, uh, that's one thing that is different about the series yeah. is the characters change. There's uh, actually parts where Nancy Nagel complains that when Ant and her first started dating, he used to write her poetry and draw fairies and stuff in the margins. But by the time you're part, by the time you're eight book five, six, seven, eight books into the series, he can't do that anymore because uh, his personality has been so altered. And I think that's why it, that's why it works is that you know it's like you could, you know. I, I don't want to say despite the nihilism because I, I feel like it really works. It really yeah. works. And it, and the difference is, is that, you know, with, with Patrick Bateman, like you don't, you don't care about that guy. He's just no. like, there's, there's no reason to care about him. He, and I understand that when Ellis wrote the book, that was his point. Literally his whole point was to write an annoying book. And he's admitted this. Yeah. He's like, I wanted to write an annoying, tedious, terrible book. And he's like one of the worst reviewed writers of his, of his era and uh yeah but i feel like it just it turns that on its head and it's because the characters do have that depth and they have they have a reason for being there even if oh yeah there's a know. definite reason for being there yeah. they have a reason to be there there's a reason for everything they did and the funny thing is a lot of people are like oh so you're just writing a book about people who don't matter and it's like well no they should have mattered but they didn't because the world moved on and no longer cared what they did it's it's hard to explain. I mean, I believe it or not, I've got the last book in the series written, and I've got a lot of the books written. Um, I've got part of the I've got part of the Just Cause Invasion of Panama book written. It's about halfway finished. Uh, the one that I that I try to write and I just bog up is Desert Storm because holy shit, that was I have a really different view than the majority of what you see. Um, it's just. <sighs> There's always this thing through the series of we do what we do because somebody has to. Somebody has to do this. This has to be done. It needs to be done by professionals. Mm -hmm. And they're always professional. I mean, no matter how much Stillwater drinks and is disrespectful and is a terrible – he's not a good soldier. He's not a good soldier in garrison. But like people say, you know, when the shit hits the fan, there's nobody else you want around. His life has meaning. But the meaning is taken from it. History takes the meaning away from it because, you know, it's really easy from where, where we stand right now in 2020. And, you know, you look back at the Soviet years and 
you can make all kinds of pronouncements about how the Soviets weren't really a threat, and that you'd be stupid to believe that you know you'd be stupid to believe that there would have been nuclear war. And well, you know, I guess we were all just fucking stupid. And it's really easy to look back at that time and sanitize everything. Oh my God, has it been sanitized? Movies are the worst. Movies are the absolute. I hate Cold War movies because they never get it right. Um, even the fucking special forces dudes I knew were so goddamn nihilistic, and I knew a lot of them. Um, we had a range of detachment up where I was at, and we had a special forces detachment where we were at. Those dudes were hardcore nihilists. They were like, "Yeah, we're gonna fucking die." <laughs> <laughs> I knew a ranger that was like, man, I had a better time in Beirut than I'm having here. <laughs> and this dude had a steel plate in his forehead because a Coke machine fell on him when the barracks was bombed. And he was like, I had a better time under that Coke machine than I'm having here. <laughs> you know, he lost two toes due to frostbite. And uh, there was always nihilism, but the, it's part of it is when you read stuff from that era – it's always officers. That was one thing. It, it's always officers. And they're always these paragons. And I kind of wanted to show the story from somebody who loses everything, but it doesn't matter. I mean, Chief Henley. Chief Henley is actually based on three different real people. Um, it's a, He's an amalgamation of three people. And... <laughs> He's basically how some warrant officers were back then with his inhumane treatment, with the stuff he says. I think the nicest, the nicest thing that the three of them said to me over the course of five years was for once I'd proven that it wouldn't have been a net benefit to the world if my mother had had an abortion. <laughs> and that was him being nice. <laughs> that was a good day. Wow. That was, I, I was actually creeped out. I went upstairs, you know, and they're like, dude, you are shaken up. What the fuck did he say to you? I was like, he said that, uh, the world, the world was a better place because my mother didn't have an abortion. Right. My platoon leader, an officer hears this and he goes, holy fuck, man, come in my office. I came in his office. He's like, are you all right? I'm like, I'm, I'm really shook up. And he poured me, he pulled it out of his desk or he pulls out a bottle of whiskey and pours me a drink. He goes, why don't you have a drink here? Sit here with me for a little while and then how about you take the rest of the day off, man? Are you all right? <laughs> That's how mean of a bastard this guy was that the world is a better place because my mother didn't have an abortion. Freaked everybody who heard about it out. You know, I seriously had my, C my CEO comes up to my room and goes, how you doing? You know, and the way he's treating me, you think, you know, you'd think like I got one of my legs blow up. He's like, how you doing? I'm like, I'm kind of fucked in the head right now. He's like, all right, if you need to talk, you know, uh, you can call me tonight if you need to. Because <laughs> 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 I got a compliment from this guy. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so Chief Henley's an amalgamation. I mean, holy fuck. Irish mob reject was another thing I used to get called. <laughs> Along with personal murder machine. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, so yeah, yeah, the nihilism goes through those books. But unlike a lot of books that features nihilism, uh, the big nihilism in it is, you know, they, they're convinced they're going to die. You had to be in at the time and working in certain jobs, and that's how you felt. The real nihilism comes from the reader. 
knowing that this is all in vain. But at the same time, what they're doing is vital because like it shows in a, in a later book that I've completely written that hasn't come out yet is the Soviet Union was looking across the border at Stillwater going, this guy will totally do it. <laughs> you know, they're like, this guy will totally paste all of Eastern Europe with chemical and nuclear weaponry. He's not even going to flinch. If we so much as set a toe over that line, he's going to kill everybody. So, you know, the, it's from the – the real nihilism comes from the reader with the reader's knowledge that none of what they did mattered. And the real nihilism is the story itself, what's true, is more than you'd believe and less than you'd think. I mean the sites, the sites, completely real. You know, the line, there are no nuclear weapons in Western Europe, was a total lie. Um, you go on Wikipedia and you see that 2,000 chemical weapons were taken out of Western Germany and – no, 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 no. <laughs> I can tell you, Misau itself shipped out probably hundreds of thousands of VX rounds. Binary VX rounds on ships and sent them directly to Johnston Atoll. Which now is nothing more than a barren island. But back in the day, Johnston Atoll was bunkers of chemical weapons. A, I think it was a Nike Hercules site too. It was one of the most secure islands in the Western Pacific. I mean, yeah, in the Western Pacific, in the South Pacific, because it was a hundred. It's a, I think it's 150 miles from Hawaii. I think that was the distance, but uh. It was one of the most secure sites, and it had everything. And now this, it's, it's a great example for the Cold War. Now it's nothing but a barren island with an environmental hazard warning. But back in the day, it was a massive depot, all designed to make sure that everybody got the chemical weapons they needed to fight in the islands in the Pacific. How's that for crazy? I remember asking you about this uh before and sort of just the way you described the, the treachery of the whole thing, just being like, it's the kind of place where, where, you know, you, you just make one little mistake and then you're not just dead, but everybody yeah. is dead everywhere, <laughs> like, like was, everywhere around you. It was, Oh God. Um, a good example. It's actually, I actually, I uh, put it in a book. It's from my own experiences. Um, I was moving ammunition, and the ammunition had been there since the 1960s, and the pallets had rotted out, so we were being very careful. And there was an accident, and the stacks of pallets collapsed around us. And we were in a bunker that was now full of deployed anti-personnel mines, and it took them six hours to get us out. And one wrong move, one wrong move, and that bunker would have exploded. But the worst part was, was next to it was a bunker containing NBC weaponry that had a compromised wall on the side we were on. So we're talking about a megaton blast measured in seconds. And it, we're talking 12 square miles of Western Europe would have vanished up its own ass. <laughs> I mean, 
you're you're working with you're working with tools made by the lowest bidder with almost no maintenance. You're working with, I mean, I I know what literally a billion rounds looks like because there was a billion five point five six on the site, and it, just the sheer scale of it, you know. You know, I talk to guys who are in nowadays, and I talk to them about the scale of things, and they just stare at me, and they're like, you were in charge of this. I was like, yeah, I was 18 in charge of it. And they're like, how? I was like, because I was the one in charge of it. <laughs> they put me in charge. <laughs> <laughs> and the scale was just, I mean, we had Tomahawk warheads. And we had 8-inch artillery, and we had uh, MLRS, you know, the 11-inch the rocket pods. You know, we had all that shit. And, you know, I had I had 14 bunkers of nothing but rocket pods of all different kinds and the sheer scale of it. And I remember because the Hotel 104, the MLRS rocket was a new system and I'm walking through the bunkers and I hear click, 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 click. And I'm like, what the fuck? And then I hear it again. So I run out of the bunker and close the door. And rule of the site is if you see somebody running, you follow them. You don't ask questions. You just follow them. <laughs> I don't know how many times I took off running and following somebody to find out they were jogging up range to take to eat or they were jogging somewhere to take a piss. You didn't ask questions because if the guy's running, <laughs> you, you don't want to be standing there. Um, and so I run out of the bunker and I close the bunker door. And I go up range and I call it in. I'm like, oh, we got a complete bunker full of Hotel 104s clicking. What does the chief tell me? Take my lazy potato eating peat bog boss golem ass back down there and inspect every bunker 104s. Tell me if they're clicking and which stacks are clicking and what lot number. So here I am. My hands are fucking shaking. I'm standing in a bunker full of these and I can hear different ones clicking. Turned out to be a grounding issue. We had to take all those rounds out and send and uh, send them back. Halfway done with it. Turns out that it can be field repaired so they have us out there with kits fixing the grounding. It was a grounding issue. It got too much stat. It got too much static electricity due to environment and the fact that everything shifts constantly. And they're sitting on rubber pads and they're moving and get a static buildup. You'd reach out and touch them and they'd shock you. Turns out that it was fucking with the mechanisms and it's causing something to go click in there. But imagine standing in a bunker with 5,000 MLRS pods hearing clicking. Yeah, no. That is where the nihilism of the 219th comes from. Because I have to go down there and inspect these. That's where his nihilism comes from, is from working with shit like that. Or a you know, fucking tomahawk warhead, you open it up and you're like, oh, how nice, there's a rat's nest in here. <laughs> Because they'll chew on the boards, they'll chew on the wiring, and now you're like, and this has got a live core. How wonderful for me. <laughs> uh, it's just, it's just and pure terror, just endless terror. Eventually you stop feeling it. Yeah. Well, yeah, eventually, no wonder. <laughs> eventually you stop feeling it. Um, we used to have a, we used to have a uh, way we'd, we'd uh, not jump in the newbies, hating, we used to haze them. They'd come in, and I'd walk them into this bunker full of rusted rounds, that, which was waiting to be destroyed. We ended up destroying them on site, but there were rusted artillery rounds from the late 50s, early 60s. And they had what's called a bursting charge, which is designed to crack the shell open to allow it to deploy the submunitions. And these were early runs. 
we're talking they had XM, not M. And I would crack one open. I grabbed the top, and it had a it had a thing that screwed into the to the fuse well with a with a metal loop on top, so you could pick it up with an iron bar or whatever. You know, unscrew it, and I pull out the bursting charge, right? And it have rust on it. I'd be tossing it hand to hand, talking about how the site is basically unsafe because half of our ammo looks like this. And I'd say, now you got the bursting charge here, and this is three and a half pounds of composition B4, low explosive. And it can be a little unstable when it crystallizes. And I'd show them the side where the rust was. And I'd say, crystallization happens. And then I'd go catch and throw it at them. You ever see somebody completely lose their shit? (laughs) 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 And I'd tell them that fear you felt. You're going to feel that for the rest of your time here. But it goes away. And that's what I try to show in in the books is that stuff eventually, eventually... They don't have fear of the site anymore. It's not – they don't disrespect it. They respect what can happen, but they're not afraid anymore because they're just too ground down. And then they get in situations that should cause a fear response, but their body's literally incapable of producing one anymore. They don't know how. There's a line where a uh, little bit goes, when was the last time – to Stillwater, she goes, when was the last time you were afraid? And he goes, when I was seven. And she's like, Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> yeah, but you, it's, it's the nihilism. that That's the nihilism. It's just inhumane conditions turn people inhuman. I, you know, in, in regards to the it, a criticism I've heard of the books is that I heard, I've heard a couple people say, you know, man, this, these are just really edgy. <laughs> and I just find that funny because it's like <laughs> I've down I've downplayed a lot of shit. I mean, give me an example of what was edgy. I mean, was it the I language that Chief if it's the language that Chief Henley uses? That's nothing. That's nothing compared to what I heard. And these guys didn't get in trouble for it. Um good example. Uh there's no way it can ever happen in the book because of the characters I have in the orderly room. But um I was standing there waiting to see the CEO because I was in trouble again. Um, I hit a crowd in the face with a whiskey bottle, and he went and complained to the pole as I. And I hit him in the face with a whiskey bottle because he's trying to mug me. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I gla- – the, the whiskey bottle didn't break, so I broke it against the fucking wall, and then I hit him with it. <laughs> but uh, I got brought in and standing there waiting for my turn because the pole as I are in there, and my fucking chain of commands and the MPs are in there, and I'm standing there. And this fucking colonel walks in, right? He looks at this girl. She's new to the unit. She's like seven, 17 year old Hispanic girl. And he walks up. The dude whips his dick out and tells her to suck it while he's waiting for to see the CO. So I got in trouble for hitting him with a chair. <laughs> That's the kind of shit that I saw because, God, the, the 80s, the 80s were hell on wheels for the army because you had guys that acted like it was still Vietnam. And it wasn't. Vietnam was over 10 years ago. And you had them acting like this toward people. And the funny thing is, is the ones that had actually seen combat were usually pretty chill. But the guys who had been to Vietnam and never saw a single bullet and like spent all their time in si- hiding under a bunk in Saigon or fucking in Cambodia or whatever were the absolute worst fucking people in the world for abuses of power. So yeah, if it's, if it's the language, it's not that edgy because I toned it down. 
I don't I don't even know specifically what you know what was being referred to, but I, I my guess is that it has to do with perhaps being kind of just divorced from the fact that this actually happened, maybe just not understanding that you know, this is coming from a real place. Yeah. You know, yeah, this a lot isn't of it does. Yeah, it's not this isn't like, you know, Cold War fan fiction. This is like it's not it's not like a a perfect, you know, mirror of reality. No. It's a fictional story, but it's 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 just layered with all kinds of truth. You know, and there is, you know, I did take some of my experiences and I fictionalized them up. You know, I punched them up and added them, and some of them I I I dropped them down and added them. And you know, I've heard a lot of people, oh, you know, Stillwater always attracts the women. Um, from his point of view, he attracts the women because he is self-confident. And he knows he's an ugly dude. And speaking as a dude who was ugly in the 80s, you could you called in tons of pussy. Especially if you stood up straight and looked women in the eyes when you spoke to them. <laughs> you know, one of my wife's biggest memories of first meeting me is I, is I, is I locked eyes with her and I didn't look below her chin. Mm. And that, you know, it really, it really stuck with her. And, you know, you could haul it in if you were self-confident. Um, you bathed and, you know, you took personal grooming and you weren't polite to people. Well, it's always big on politeness and, you know, well-mannered, but, you know, I was also, I was also a big dude, you know, nowadays, you know, I'm old and skinny because, you know, that's how old, us old dudes over 50 who don't lift weights roll. And, uh, yeah, you know, it's part of that is from me. I mean, I never spent a weekend alone. I didn't want to. And I've heard people say, well, you know, he's got a girlfriend that's willing to do all kinds of stuff. Well, you know, back then your girlfriend was willing to do all kinds of nasty things because it was the eighties. <laughs> 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 and it's hard to explain if you weren't there. Um, that's one of the big things. That's one of the big complaints I've seen. I've also seen it complained. I've also seen the complaints that he doesn't lose any fights. And he does. Uh, a couple times he gets his ass kicked. <laughs> um, but I, as a writer and as a reader of fiction, I read a lot of fiction. Um, they used to they used to give me they used to give me shit in, it in the military that I always like. John Bomber has a habit in the story that was actually my habit in the army. I used to always carry a book in my back pocket. Um, I always had a book in my back pocket because the army back then was hurry up and wait. We didn't have cell phones. And even if cell phones existed, I wouldn't have been allowed to carry one anyway because I, I went into secure areas all the time. So I always had a book in my back pocket and read. And one of the things I have hated and I think has permanently damaged fiction is the concept of the everyman. That the protagonist of the story should be just like everybody else. Well, I'm here to tell you, 90% of humanity is boring as shit. Okay, I don't want to read about how he's, you know, going to the bank and how standing there at the bank he feel, you know, fuck off. Okay, everybody goes to the bank, everybody hates it at the bank, nobody likes the tellers, and everybody knows the ATM machine never works for you. <laughs> and everybody knows that when you're at the ATM machine, grandma is trying to feed pennies into it. We get it. Every man <clears throat> is boring. But the same people, you know, I had somebody tell me, you know, oh, well, he just seems too perfect. I'm like, so you're a big military fictioner. They're like, yeah. I said, you know, you read all these true tales of Navy SEALs and shit. 
and all this Tom Clancy stuff. He's like, oh, I love Tom Clancy. And I was like, Tom Clancy is the worst military writer in the world. And they're like, what? I said, I actually wrote him a letter and bitched him out in, <laughs> in 1989. I wrote him a eight-page letter detailing why he was an ignorant asshole and why I would beat him with an inch of his life if I ever met him personally. Now, here's the funny thing about Tom Clancy. He wrote me back. <laughs> what? He wrote me back. In the book Red Storm Rising, the U.S. Army is the most incompetent bag of cat assholes in the entire literary universe. And it's obvious he didn't do a bit of research on Western Europe and the theater and the type of people who made it there and the kind of shit we did. And it was... The, the book insulted me on a personal fucking level. And he wrote back that he apologized and he's sorry I felt so strongly about it. And he understood why he felt so strongly at it considering I was serving <laughs> at the time. Because part of the story that I remember was the tank unit. Well, the tank unit he was fictionally uh, writing about was 168th Armor. 168th Armor was one of the units I supported. And I knew those guys. And it was personally insulting because this tank unit was the most incompetent fucking people I'd ever seen. And he told me that if he had made it comp if he had made the US Army competent, he thought it would have been a short war. <laughs> if the book would not it would it wouldn't be there'd be no reason to have a book. Which is why I've always heard, you know, if we show the US military being competent then our story is really short. <laughs> you know, and I guess I've carried that through later. But I always hear, you know, oh, you know, he's perfect, he's perfect. And I'm like, really? Because he makes mistakes all the goddamn time. There's a scene that's going to come up in a later book where he gets robbed. And it's actually based on something that happened to me. I was living in a non-secure section of post in a non-secure barracks. And I pick up this girl at the club. And I was with my friends, and I remember seeing her, and she would go get me drinks. And then I remember taking her back to my room. And I wake up the next day in my room. My room's empty. My wall lockers are empty. She stole the furniture. <laughs> and the MPs go, do you remember what she looks like? And I was like, shit. And he's like, blam, and an ass like, pow. And I'm like, that's not much help. Do you remember anything about her? I'm like, she had hair. <laughs> <laughs> so a couple weeks go by, I replace everything. Payday comes. You know, I go out drinking. I'm talking to this chick, and she's hot, man. She's got titties like, blam, and an ass like, pow. And she started buying, she bought me a couple drinks, and we went back to my room, and I woke up on the floor. She'd robbed me again. <laughs> oh, my God. It turns out she was roofing me. <laughs> what? <laughs> so she could rob my ass. <laughs> wow. I got roofied. That's why I couldn't remember what she looked like. But uh, <laughs> I'm actually going to put that scene in the book because it's something that would happen to the character because <laughs> he's that goddamn brainless. <laughs> yeah. My, my wife's like, I don't know why I trust your judgment. You're the guy that, that, that got robbed by the same chick three times. <laughs> yes, she robbed me again. <laughs> three times. She robbed me three times. <laughs> I can't believe that. To this day, it's like, what the fuck was I? Oh, yeah, she had He's like, blam. <laughs> <laughs> and I think she had hair. <laughs> <sighs> <laughs> 
So, you know, people are like, oh, he's too perfect. No, he's not. He's a dumbass. <laughs> you know, and the thing is, is I've also noticed the idea of professionalism uh, for a lot of people is gone. Um, the idea, I don't know, it's something weird. Um, I have, I've had this complaint a couple times that they don't understand why Stillwater's not an officer. You know, he's an expert in his field. He's an expert with the weapons that he's been assigned. He's constantly improving his education. He's constantly learning. He's constantly going to schools. He's constantly in leadership position. Why isn't he an officer? Because he's not officer material. He's the drunken womanizer. And I guess it's because, going back, I hate the everyman thing. Because the everyman is a boring, skillless asshole and has led rise to Bella Swan and has led rise to the idea that a teenager can pick up a fully automatic weapon and be instantly proficient with it to the point of making headshots. Um, the everyman fallacy believes that you can take an ordinary, everyday person and put them in heroic circumstances and they will rise to the occasion. That's not true, or else they wouldn't be everybody. Um, I could never be a cop. I could never be a firefighter. I mean, those that's dangerous fucking work, you know, says the guy who handled <laughs> chemical weapons with his bare hands. Uh, <laughs> you know, I couldn't do that shit. That's dangerous. You know, I, I don't think – I don't know if I'd have what it took, but yet I'm expected – I'm expected to believe that, you know, Little Miss Princess – is able to charge into a fire and carry a 200-pound man. <laughs> no. Um, I'm supposed to believe that Mr. Everyman can pick up a rifle and be an expert with it. No, no. Oh, another thing that people miss? Stillwater can't shoot an M16. He cannot hit shit with an M16. He can barely qualify, but they keep him around because, well, number one, in close quarters combat, he's a fucking wrecking machine. But when it comes to his rifle, he sucks with it. And it's actually explained uh, in the second to last book. They figured out what he was doing wrong. And it's so fucking dumb. <laughs> but it's actually one of the things that gets missed a lot by people who are learning how to shoot. Um, but yeah, I mean, in a way, I guess it looks edgy. I guess the books look edgy, <clears throat> but, uh, I grew up on my camera and I grew up on, you know, books like that. And I don't know, it doesn't seem edgy to me. Well, I think, I think again, I think part of it's like in the same way, perhaps that I, you know, I look at a book like let's go play at the Adams and I'm like, I don't know. I feel like it's for me, it's like it, you know, not only because of the history of it that I already know yeah. about and because of, uh, you know, just kind of that, that period of time and the fact that it's the military and the fact that there's this setting and the fact that, you know, yeah. here's the situation. It's like, it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't feel overly edgy at all it's just like you know this is this is what it is the big thing i get a lot of disbelief at is that uh the military would entrust nuclear weaponry to 18 year old drunken retards <laughs> <laughs> and i hate to tell them this but they've been doing that since the 1950s <laughs> 
because an 18-year-old drunken retard doesn't have the self-preservation to go, you know, I probably shouldn't be working on this thing without, like, millions of dollars worth of shielding, but hand me that wrench. <laughs> and that's just, it just adds to the, the, the yeah. horror of it. Like, my God. Yeah. yeah, it's what the government was willing to do to these kids. And they are. You know, they're 18 years old, but they're kids. You know, by today's standards, by today's standards of children. By the standards of the 80s, he's 18 years old. He's a man. And that's one thing. That is one thing I've heard a lot of people mention. That it's so weird reading that everybody above the age of 18 is treated as if they're the masters of their own destiny. If they can't make it, they're just losers. And that's how it was. I mean, maybe it wasn't if you weren't, you know, junkyard dog. But... You were 18, you were expected to move the fuck out. And you had a choice. You could get a job and move out, you could go to college and move out, or you could join the military and move out. Those were your choices that everybody I knew was given. Hell, some of us, it was before that. I mean, it might sound ridiculous to people now, but like I said, either at the beginning of the stream right before we started, um, when I was 14, I left home. And I had a truck, and the sheriff knew I was driving. Um, I had a job and my girlfriend moved in with me because, you know, that's, that's how it was. It didn't raise that many eyebrows that I was 14 years old and I'm working. You know, it wasn't that startling. I knew a lot of kids who their freshman year of high school started working. But nowadays the idea of that is completely alien. You know, I've heard, I've heard them call. I've heard the news and people on the news call somebody twenty-five years old a child. And it's like, how the fuck? I'd been to two wars and blown up. <laughs> I'm fuck. I was married with kids by the time I was twenty-five. Well, he was just a child. No, he wasn't. No, he's not. He's a twenty-five-year-old man. This interview is continued in the next episode. 